Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, it's Jenny. This season on Women Belong in the House, we're diving into the caregiving economy. We know that there's a lot to unpack with all of these issues. So each week, we're going to share with you an episode from the latest season of White Picket Fence to bring you the history and context you need to really understand where we are today. Tune in on Tuesday for the first episode of a brand new season of Women Belong in the House. Enjoy! If you listen to this show, you probably already realized that I'm a bit of a political junkie. I spend a lot of my day thinking about, discussing, and writing about politics and policy. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to hear that I've been following the debate over President Biden's Build Back Better Act pretty closely. Several months ago, I noticed a lot of prominent conservatives leveling a coordinated attack against the act's childcare provisions. Specifically, they argued that investments in childcare would penalize families in which a parent stays home to raise children. It sounded kind of ludicrous. I mean, how is someone who doesn't need childcare penalized by its availability? The Build Back Better Act wouldn't require anyone to use childcare. Parents could choose to access childcare for their children or not. They could choose to take advantage of free pre-K or not. But then I realized that this argument was tapping into something more fundamental, fear. We need to take this argument seriously. Because as we'll talk about today, fear is what's been used to block investments in childcare for decades and any public benefit that would help families. This fear evokes the same nostalgic undertones for the traditional nuclear family that we talked about last week. And by framing childcare as a preference of elite families, they're tapping into the anti-feminism that was used the last time we had a political debate over childcare, 50 years ago. But if we're gonna talk about fear and how it's been used to block investments in the common good, then we're also gonna have to talk about something else, racism. I'm Julie Kohler, and this is White Picket Fence. This season, we're exploring our country's caregiving crisis and the ideologies about race, gender, families, the economy, and yes, white women, that have blocked public investment in care and led us to a point where so many of us are cracking. As we've talked about a lot, the U.S. does not have a national childcare system. And our lack of investment has had devastating effects on women, children, and our economy. Right now, with the Build Back Better Act, the Biden administration might deliver a $400 billion investment in universal pre-K and child care. It would be a revolutionary step. Here's the thing, though. This is not our country's first rodeo with national child care. The system once existed. During World War II, our government spent $78 million creating high-quality childcare centers. These centers helped Rosie the Riveter, and thousands like her, enter the workforce. 
27% of Richmond shipbuilders were women. Feminine workers with small children inspired the founding of 35 nursery school units and 10 extended daycare centers, which mothered over 1,400 youngsters at a time. But after the war, funding evaporated. These centers disappeared, and the number of women working plummeted. Then came the 60s, second wave feminism, civil rights, a dramatic rise in women's employment. And suddenly, there was political interest in childcare, again. In fact, 50 years ago, the Comprehensive Child Development Act landed on President Nixon's desk. It had passed both houses of Congress with bipartisan support, and Nixon vetoed it. He warned of a communal approach to child-rearing and the bill's family-weakening implications. Those are direct quotes. The president says the $2 billion to have been spent on the first year for child care would be, as he put it, a long leap into the dark. The Build Back Better Act is facing familiar opposition from conservatives, peddling Nixon-era rhetoric. Some have invoked fears of a government takeover of daycare. Others have claimed that investments in childcare would be unfair to so-called traditional families, where mothers stay at home with their kids. This plan is meant to get as many parents, especially mothers, into the workforce. I, I, I stop and say, well, why do we want that? Let me be clear. Radical Democrats are not the party of parents, and they're certainly not the party for children. Their interest in passing universal childcare and universal pre-K is just to start indoctrinating our kids sooner. Children are not entitled to government daycare. What children are entitled to is love from their own parents. But this time, the rhetoric is falling short. It looks like the child care bill might pass. The Build Back Better Act would create free universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds. It would limit child care expenses to 7% of families' income. Nine in 10 American families with young children would gain access to affordable child care. It really makes you wonder why it took 50 years to happen. To understand why, we need to first understand what went wrong back in 1971. Here's Nancy Cohen, president of the Gender Equality Policy Institute. Let me start with setting the scene of the women's movements and the feminist movements of the late 60s and early 70s. It was really one of the only times in American history that the women's movement, very broad-based, very diverse, was a mass movement by 1971, had significantly changed public opinion in favor of a lot of issues that we would consider central to women's equality and gender equality. At the same time, you have a reactionary president, Nixon, in office. So in the middle of all of that, entered a Midwestern senator with a big idea. What you have in setting the scene for this bill being introduced, Senator Walter Mondale had always been a strong advocate for children, true progressive, came from a poor family himself and had a very precarious childhood. So his interest in this came a little bit out of understanding what it was like for children. Fans of the show will remember this fun fact from last season's prologue. Walter Mondale, 
former Minnesota senator and vice president. Winning the Democratic nomination in 1984 was the catalyst for my own passion for politics. He's kind of my guy. So it's no surprise to me that he championed this effort. And at the time, lots of things, public opinion, social movements, political influence, were coming together just right in favor of positive change. There was a convergence of civil rights movements, of women's movements, child development experts who realized that the U.S. had already reached a crisis with women in the workforce. And so through a lot of maneuvering, this Comprehensive Child Development Act came through and passed the Senate by more than a two-thirds majority on a bipartisan vote, had a little bit more difficulty in the House, but still passed the House. The U.S. was still in the um, tail end of President Johnson's war on poverty. So there was very much a sense of this was an economic justice bill and a racial justice bill. These same social and political movements also contributed to Nixon's veto. All of those factors coming together set the scene for Nixon vetoing the bill with a really unhinged veto message warning that it would Sovietize America, that it was basically a communist plot. On one hand, he's reaching to anti-communist rhetoric, but it really was a dog whistle to patriarchy. It may not sound surprising that a Republican president shot down a child care bill. Today, that's kind of a given. But at the time, it was shocking. Nixon's own administration had helped draft the bill. And Nixon was conflicted. He even requested two speeches, one for signing the bill and one for vetoing it. So who tipped the scales? A guy named Pat Buchanan. Back then, he was Nixon's speechwriter. He convinced the president that killing the bill would boost his standing with an emerging base of conservative activists. The real reason for the veto, based on my research, is that it was a play to the right. This is December 1971. Within a few weeks, Nixon is going to be running in the New Hampshire primary for re-election. And he faced an opponent on his right who was very much playing to the anti-communist wings of the party. So Nixon had his finger in the wind about where Republican primary voters were going. I just want to emphasize that at the time, there were lots of feminists within the Republican Party, and they actually held sway over the anti-feminists in the party. The family values rhetoric that Nixon used wasn't actually mainstream. The idea of women working was just not that political. But Nixon saw where the grassroots energy in the party was going. His veto was the beginning of the end for universal child care. In the years that followed, Walter Mondale tried to revive the bill, scaling back its scope. A revised version passed the Senate in 1973, but it died in the House. Talk of child care proposals started to resurface a couple years later, but this time, white conservative women mobilized a massive counterattack. Now, it was still tiny numbers compared to the support 
that feminism had, and particularly these pretty mainstream feminist ideas of providing childcare and equal pay. But basically, these women, um, mostly in the South, some in the West, in anti-feminist groups, got wind of the childcare bills coming forward. And in really an explicit defense of patriarchy and women's subordination in the family mobilized and flooded Congress with thousands of letters opposing these childcare bills. And that was it. That was the end of it for quite some time. Anti-feminism and anti-socialism have always been at the heart of the opposition to childcare or any of the supports that would make raising children easier. We've been hearing these ideas recycled in the debate over the Build Back Better Act. But opposition is intrinsically linked to something else, too. Racism. We've talked about how women of color, especially black women, have long provided the domestic labor that keeps more affluent families afloat. And their labor helped create this vision of the traditional nuclear family. Our government's continued refusal to invest in childcare keeps that work undervalued and underpaid. Here's Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change and co-founder of the Economic Security Project. I think to understand the care economy policies, again, we have to go back to the founding and think about the nature of care work and how devalued it has been from for centuries. And this is not just in the U.S., this is across the world where care work has been defined in very stark gendered terms as women's work and therefore um, not deserving of dignity, of value, and of uh, remuneration for that labor. And then you add in the American racial context of who was doing the care work for the first couple hundred years of this country. Well, it was Black women in particular. And so if you look at the composition of Who is doing the care work in terms of women of color, black women, immigrant women? If you think about essential workers today, it's no coincidence to me that the composition of who performs that work and the devaluation of that work goes hand in hand. So this has been a long, long effort to try to do the political work and the cultural work to value care work as work, as labor. The death of the 1971 child care bill didn't just hurt middle-class women who wanted to work outside the home. It was part of a long history of policies that kept a certain kind of work, and worker, low-paid, at the margins of our economy. I have to point out, just to say, the rules of our economy also help solidify the devaluation of care work. So I'm thinking here of how domestic workers in particular were excluded from New Deal social policies. Um, If you think of the Wagner Act and the right to organize into a union, domestic and agricultural workers, nope. If you think of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is our minimum wage, domestic workers and agricultural workers excluded. So domestic workers in particular have always, always been seen as an other, as those who are only supposed to perform certain duties for wealthy and elite and privileged people. And I think because of the decades of organizing, we're at a potentially different and maybe even transformative moment when it comes to care work right now. Like Nancy said, Nixon was reading the tea leaves. 
he could see that a conservative grassroots movement was coming. It was anti-feminist, sure, and strongly anti-socialist, but there was something more. Racist backlash was at the heart of the modern-day conservative movement. Over the next couple of decades, childcare became central to how that backlash would manifest itself in our politics. And no one embraced that strategy more clearly than an actor with big political ambitions, Ronald Reagan. Understanding Reagan <laughs> as part of, he was the, the exemplification, he is sort of the maturity of the backlash against the civil rights and black freedom movement in the 60s. He comes out of, you know, Barry Goldwater and the conservative West Coast politicians who were searching for ways to resist the efforts at racial justice and racial equity. From the start, Reagan embraced the racist dog whistle. He launched his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the site where civil rights activists James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Mickey Schwerner were murdered for trying to register black voters in 1964. I know that in speaking to this crowd, that I'm speaking to what has to be about 90% Democrat. And that is not an accident. He knew exactly what he was doing. That was political strategy. And it was an explicit anti-black political strategy to really signal to white voters, especially white Southern voters, I'm one of you and I will take up the lost cause. And he didn't stop there. And then on the campaign trail, he tells this story over and over and over. And it always enrages me every time I even think about it because it's very personal for me. He tells the story of a black woman from Chicago. Chicago is my hometown, so it's very personal for me. And it's the welfare queen story. And he's telling this story over and over. Oh, there's this woman in Chicago and she has a Cadillac and fur coats and buys steaks with her food stand and all this stuff that becomes the dominant narrative around welfare. Reagan ran on a platform that's now synonymous with the Republican Party. Low taxes, small government. His welfare queen story was meant to be a cautionary tale of wasteful government spending. But it was no coincidence that the woman at the center of that story was Black. So Reagan's telling the story about welfare, you know, the welfare queen over and over. The Republican Party and conservatives are repeating this story. And then Democrats at the time, let's talk about it, were also quick to jump in on the story, on the broader narrative around who is deserving and who is not deserving. And we know what both parties meant by that. White people are deserving, non-white people not deserving. We've been living with that legacy for 40 years by stoking fear of so-called undeserving Black single mothers, Reagan transformed our national conversation about public benefits. And he wasn't alone. In the 1990s, President Bill Clinton reformed welfare. What was previously a program of cash assistance for poor women and children became temporary assistance with work requirements. President George W. Bush took welfare reform to the next level. He dumped millions of dollars into marriage promotion programs literally government programs that encouraged poor women to get married. These programs did nothing to reduce poverty or increase marriage, 
but they furthered the belief that being poor was the result of bad personal decision-making. Common sense policies, like the 1971 child care bill, became politically toxic. Any government benefit evoked that welfare queen image. A lot of beliefs about gender and race have made the U.S. an inhospitable place for families, especially mothers and other caregivers. But at the root of all of this is a fear that helping the vulnerable will somehow hurt the rest of us. It's what some call a zero-sum scarcity framework. This fear is what kept the U.S. from creating a childcare system back in 1971. It's what prompted politicians from both parties to gut our social safety net in the following decades. And it's what conservatives trotted out again in the debate over the Build Back Better Act. Its origins run deep. Well, I think the origins of our zero-sum scarcity framework essentially come from the origins of this country. And so um, with due respect to Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project, I think we can start there. In the structuring of a country, first of <laughs> taking of land from indigenous inhabitants who already were on that land, that's already the beginning of a zero-sum framework and notion that somehow the folks who were already here did not deserve the land of this country like these white settlers. And so that's the beginning of zero sum. And then you add in indentured servants and then of course, those who were enslaved, particularly from the continent of Africa. And the notion that um, it was divinely ordained that some people did not deserve the same freedoms as others, and particularly not only deserve the same freedoms, were meant to be exploited for others' wealth. So I tend to think of American history in, in three numbers, 25, 10, and 5, and those represent decades. So first 25 decades, system of chattel slavery and human bondage. Then we had a civil war and a little period called Reconstruction, which was the idea was to reconstruct our democracy and economy. And then that short period ended. It was fought against. And we had another 10 decades of Jim Crow, what some scholars called slavery by another name. So that's 25 decades of slavery, then 10 decades or 100 years of Jim Crow. And then the last number is five, the last five decades or 50 years or so, we have seen the opening up in many ways of this country in terms of full citizenship, particularly for black people. But that's a recent amount of, that's a small amount of time in the great sweep of history. And so if you think of the first 25 decades and then the second 10 decades, zero sum thinking pervaded our country throughout that entire time. And so it's not a, an accident that here we are, you know, five decades after the civil rights movement and the women's movement and the gay liberation movement and others that we're still dealing with this fundamental framework that has defined the country from the founding. One piece of legislation can't undo this foundational framework, but I believe that it can be an important first step. As author and activist Heather McGee writes in her book, The Sum of Us, there's a way to defeat this zero-sum thinking. It's by cultivating what she calls the solidarity dividend, the idea that by coming together across race, we can accomplish what we can't do on our own. McGee says that the quickest way to get there is to refill the pool on public goods 
for everyone. Childcare is one of those critical public goods. But to get there, we need not only to overcome the nostalgic ideology of family life that continues to be evoked today, and not only the racial fear and stratification that's been with us since our nation's founding, we will need to overcome a theory about the economy that has become something close to religious doctrine for much of the last half century. Next week on White Picket Fence. You know, it's kind of like the fish in the bowl of water doesn't know that it's in the bowl of water until it suddenly finds itself outside the bowl of water gasping for air. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and Taylor Williamson. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Shared Ascent Fund for their generous support for this season. We want to hear about your caregiving experiences, especially during the pandemic. Just call 212-655-5048 and leave us a voicemail with your story. We might just play it on the show. That's 212-655-5048. 